Now I'm going to screw it up by speaking. Well, I hope everyone's enjoying this mild weather we've been having. I know Friday morning, Jim and I and Tyler played 18, and it was, it was hot, but I get in my car and the, and the car temperature says 56. And it was really in the 80s. I'm going, I love my car, it's such an optimist. Because I'm getting ready to pass out, and it's... Well, we are winding down Isaiah. I know Al shared last week he didn't know if he would get to do it again, but he gets to close us out. You have me today and for two more weeks after that, and then, and then um, Al's going to bring us the last portion of 66. So a recap over the last two weeks. What have we seen? Well, Al walked us through that fourth anointed song, and we see Jesus walking to his people after his complete annihilation over a God-hating world. This visual, if you look at it, it had to be intense. You know, you see Hollywood movies, and you see like smoke, and the hero walking out after it, and they're usually cut up and, and bleeding and whatnot, but they were victorious. That's not going to be this way. This is going to be Jesus walking out in perfect condition. The only thing soiled will be his garments. So, and they were covered with, with blood. And the picture of it is these clothes were worn by a person who was pressing grapes. Um, but this was not grape juice that was on these robes. And we're going to see this mental picture this week as well of, of wine and grapes. And last week we saw a picture of God's people that were broken and living among ruins. And Isaiah, knowing how sinful these people were and all that they'd been doing, was now asking God if he would spare these people in his prayer for mercy. So then, what are we going to see today? God is showing us that the people of the world are going to be broken into two camps. Like we saw last week, we saw repentant people hoping for some relief, any relief. In the last two chapters, we will see God's ultimate intention for his people and for his enemies. We will see God's people his servants will be set alongside others who have compromised their life. And we can call the way they've been living, they're living as outright pagans. When we wind up these chapters, we will see the ultimate place that both people will go. And God contrasts this beautifully in a song that we're going to see next week. And since it's a song... I have a special treat for you guys. You guys are going to love it. We're, we're, <laughs> we're going to have Colleen come up and she will beautifully sing the promises to God's servants. And then I will not so beautifully sing the punishment for those who served anything but God. 
So 50% will be beautiful, the other 50% will be rough. But today, in all seriousness, we're going to cover Isaiah 65, 1 through 12, in the following way. We're going to break it down as verse 1 is the Lord's world initiative. The Lord's world initiative. 2 through 7 is the pleading, provocation, and reaction. 8 through 10 is God's preserved remnant will inherit his land. God's preserved remnant will inherit his land. And 11 and 12 is the fate for the followers of folly. The fate for the followers of folly. So let's jump in and read this passage. 65, 1 through 12. I was ready to be sought by those who did not ask for me. I was ready to be found by those who did not seek me. I said, here I am, here I am, to a nation that was not called by my name. I spread out my hands all the day to a rebellious people who walk in a way that is not good, following their own devices. A people who provoke me to my face continually, sacrificing in gardens and making offerings on bricks, who sit in tombs and spend the night in secret places, who eat pig's flesh. The broth of a tainted meat is in their vessels, who say, keep to yourself, do not come near me, for I am too holy for you. These are smoke in my nostrils, a fire that burns all the day. Behold, it is written before me, I will not keep silent, but I will repay. I will indeed repay into their lap, both your iniquities and your father's iniquities together, says the Lord. Because they made offerings on the mountains and insulted me, on the hills. I will measure into their lap payment for their deeds. Thus says the Lord, as a new wine is found in a cluster, and they say, do not destroy it, for there is a blessing in it, so I will do for my servants' sake, and not destroy them all. I will bring forth an offspring from Jacob, and from Judah possessors of my mountains and my chosen shall possess it, and my servants shall dwell there. Sharon shall become a pasture, pasture for flocks, and the valley of Achor a place for herds to lie down, for my people who have sought me. But you who forsake the Lord, who forgot my holy mountain, who set a table for fortune, and fill cups of mixed wines for destiny, I destine you to the sword." and all of you shall bow down to the slaughter. Because when I called, you did not answer. When I spoke, you did not listen. But you did what was evil in my eyes and chose what I did not delight in. Let's pray. Jesus, we thank you so much for who you are and just how incredible you are. We thank you for this passage, how we clearly see you, and your intent for us in it, and intent for your enemies. Holy Spirit, just please come now and quiet our hearts. 
and help us to focus on your word and, and your message for us today. Help us to clear out the things of this world and just give this time to you. We love you so much, and we can't wait for the words in this passage to come about. Amen. Verse 1, the, world's, the Lord's World Initiative. It says, I was ready to be sought by those who did not ask for me. I was ready to be found by those that did not seek me. I said, here I am, here I am, to a nation that was not called by my name. So God has taken this initiative to call a people who neither asked for him or sought after him. He is presenting himself to a people not previously related to him. Some commentators believe that God here is talking about bringing back the rebellious Israel, but the word those here refers to the calling of other nations. And we have seen this reference in other passages in Isaiah, like 2, verses 2 and 3, 18, 7, 19, 19. And we even have seen it in that great book of the Bible in Zechariah in 14, 6. Refers to those, is referring to other nations. And this verse matches the verses that are coming up in several weeks in Isaiah 66, 18 through 21, where God says he will be gathering all nations and tongues, and they will come to see his glory. So God will be reaching out to a people who has not seen his glory, nor has heard a report about him. And this matches perfectly with what we know the Bible says about God drawing us to him. People, people will, and I, I, I still have to apologize to a young man who, who goes to a Calvary Chapel in, I think it's like uh, Atlanto, because we were talking about this, and I explained how his church doesn't believe correctly. Because people will and do incorrectly that state that man has to help God with salvation. And we know that's only true is that we bring sin. We bring nothing else. But in the faith that he's following, we have to help God. God's up in heaven, wringing his hands together, wondering if we will choose him. That's not the case. That's not a mighty God. So we know that's not true. And John 15, 16 even says, God chose us. We did not choose him. John 15, 16. And then, if it was up to us, why would we ever choose him? I mean, you think about it. It is an absolute miracle that you, in your life, and the, the path you were on, were called by God, because he did it. With how wonderful the created is, and people go after it, there's no way, there's no way, on their own, they would choose God. And then we know God reaches out to us through his word. And the heart of the message, of this message, is found here as, as well, by it starting off and saying, here I am, here I am, or we could say, behold me, 
behold me. And we know that's a powerful word in the Bible, the word behold. It's a, it's a warning. It's a pay attention or else kind of term. And God is using here saying, behold me. Be aware, be warned. I am here for you. But this call, if you think about it, it was earth-shattering at this time to those who understood the message of what was being saying. Theologically, this was very sound. But geographically, this was a major revelation to the people. So because God had called for separation from his people and all others, right? He had called for separation. Do not intermarry. Do not eat other people's unclean foods. Do not serve man-made gods. Don't do it. And if you interact with them, you may be determined to be unclean or, or you may now be worthy of death. And remember in Nehemiah, this is after they came back from exile. Nehemiah, wonderful man who loved God. And for those of us that, you know, that in management, Nehemiah wasn't a prophet or priest. He was a leader. He was, he was a boss man. So he was very adamant as he was getting this people back together, getting Jerusalem rebuilt. Um, this was, of course, they were released by who we saw in Isaiah earlier that was prophesied 150 years before it took place. By name, Cyrus released them. And Nehemiah was so adamant, he even went to physical means, physical means to remind people of God's law. We see that in Nehemiah 13, 24 through 26. And he discovered this people that have come back to build everything up, looking at these children of Jewish men. And it said half of their children spoke the language of Ashdod, and they could not speak the language of Judah, but only the language of each people. Nehemiah is saying this. I confronted them, cursed them, beat some of them, pulled out their hair. Now that's not just hair on their head, that's facial, because beards meant something back then. So here he is ripping it out. And I made them take an oath in the name of God, saying, you shall not give your daughters to their sons or take their daughters for your sons or for yourselves. Cool part. Did not Solomon, king of Israel, sin on account of such women? Among many nations, there was no king ever like him. And he was beloved by his God, and God made him king over all of Israel. Nevertheless, Foreign women made even him sin. So this separation of peoples is what Israel knew. Now God was saying, in this right here, I will bring in a new people, a people group or a nation that was unreached, and we know now there's multiple of them that he brought in. His objective was and is to bring his people of any nation in to embrace his name. 
So his new people and the children of Zion will know that his, that his name is his name and it has lasted forever and it will continue to last. Verses 2 through 7, pleading, provocation, and reaction. I spread out my hands all the day to a rebellious people who walk in a way that is not good, following their own devices. Verse 2 is a picture now. It's actually a picture of Jesus with his hands spread out to a rebellious people. And the picture of the hands, it's not spread out in anything. It's actually in that time you had your hands lifted up to pray. And we see this picture in other verses. 1 Kings 8.22, speaking of Solomon, Then Solomon stood before the altar of the Lord in the presence of the assembly of Israel and spread out both his hands towards heaven. And then in Ezra 9.5, also gives us a picture of prayer with Ezra in full humility before God on his knees and his hands are spread out to God in prayer. So this gives us a picture, verse 2, of something that should not be so. It shouldn't. God is showing us that his appeal to his people is falling on deaf ears and eyes. He wants them to move closer. Them, us. Closer in a desired relationship. But the people are obstinate, and the ESV says rebellious, but obstinate. And how do we know? It says here in verse 2, God is waiting all day, all day for someone to come into that relationship. And his hands are spread out in appeal. Again, it shows us all day. And why? Why are they avoiding him? They're following their own way. And that path seems so good to them. An undertone of this verse is pointing us to understand that their mind was not focused on God, but was focused on their own thoughts, their own desires, and their own imagination. So let's further look at this picture of Jesus standing with his hands spread out. This is what someone does, especially when you're coming into someone's presence that you greatly love. Hands are spread out, and you want to get that hug, and, and you want to greet them. And then your little granddaughter runs right around you and goes to her grandma. It's frustrating. It's frustrating. So God's looking at this people with their hands spread out, wanting to hug on him, and they're basically treating him like if you go to Costco and you've gone like your 70, 80 steps. There's a little guy in a blue shirt to the left selling solar. You walk by him, quickly don't even look at him. That's what they're doing to God. Same thing, same thing as the solar salesman. And how does God feel about this? 
Let's look. Verses 3 through 5. A people who provoke me to my face continually, sacrificing in gardens and making offerings on bricks, who sit in tombs and spend the night in secret places, who eat pig's flesh, the broth of tainted meat is in their vessels, who say, keep to yourself, do not come near me, for I am too holy for you. These are smoke in my nostrils, a fire that burns all the day. This verse shows us a people that not only follow their own path, but they are chasing after the created. Exodus 23 told them, Exodus 20 verse 3 told them, you are not to have any other gods before God. So there is no room, no room for an alternate form of worship. This false god worship, this act, God says, provokes him. It provokes him. So think about this. Think about this, what they're doing. This is the God that destroyed Sodom and Gomorrah. I mean, it wasn't in pleasant fashion. This is the God that drowned the Egyptian army, wiped them out. And even more recently, in this people right now in their lifetime, and in Isaiah's word, we see he wiped out 185,000 Assyrian soldiers in a matter of mere moments, wiped him out by himself. No one else was involved. And this is the God they're provoking. May not be the best of ideas, might not. And God says they are doing this to his very face and not just doing it once, but constantly doing it, constantly doing it. Sacrificing in the gardens, and the guards we know, especially if you've gone through the Song of Songs or Song of Solomon, gardens equal fertility. So they're sacrificing in the gardens. It's an example of worshiping to some type of fertility god. And then the horrible thing we also see is they're making offerings or sacrificing on bricks. On bricks. That may not mean something just going through it, but first of all, these sacrifices, we know they're not to God. They are not to God. We don't know exactly what animals being sacrificed, but we can guess it's probably a pig, and they probably experienced bacon, and they're wanting to go back. They're not in his temple. So they are making sacrifices in gardens on bricks. So we know that God does not want sacrifices in a garden. He wants them in his holy temple. And he definitely does not want sacrifices on bricks. It's another sign of disobedience. And it's dishonoring. God says to make an offering to him on his altar and it shall be made on uncut stone. And in Exodus 20, 25, it gives that instruction. It says, if you make me an altar of stone, you shall not build of it with 
hewn, or hewn means cut, stone. For if you wield your tool on it, you profane it. So he has seen me use hand tools. A quote, a quote I read about this is so perfect. It's so perfect. It says, disobedience often begins at a point where obedience would be easy, but we do not think it is important. Let me say that again. Disobedience often begins at a point where obedience would be easy, but we do not think it is important. The Acts in verse 3 are bad, but Isaiah is going to take this condemnation deeper. Verse 4 brings us another condemnation, and this is deeper because of the subject. So we know that God had prophets that spoke for him to the people, and Isaiah was one of these prophets. But here... Here, the people are in consultation with the dead. 18, Deuteronomy 18, 9 through 12 says the following about this practice. It says, when you come into the land the Lord your God is giving you, you shall not learn to follow the abominable practices of those nations. There should not be found among you anyone who burns his son or daughter in as an offering, anyone who practices divination or tells fortunes or interprets omens, or a sorcerer, or a charmer, or a medium, or a necromancer, or one who choirs of the dead. For whoever does these things is an abomination to the Lord, and because of these abominations, the Lord your God is driving them out before you. So God forbid this activity, and he drove out the nations that were doing it out of this promised land to the, to the Jewish people. They inherited the land. Now they have taken up the very thing that got them the land. They were eating and drinking unclean foods. Broth is said here, but it can also mean little bits or chunks of meat. And the idea presented is they were eating old meat even. Temple worship, which was good on many levels, also gave meat a shelf life. And the idea that this verse is giving us is these people are eating meat, tainted meat, and bits of meat well past its shelf life. So in verse 5, we say they have, they have far gone, they are so far gone, and they have developed their own idea of what holiness is. And they, since they made the rules, they're on top. They are the top level. They've created divisions in their own form of this worship, which we see nowhere in the Bible. Nowhere. Ignoring God and doing their own thing is a constant 
irritant to God. And he's going to have this solved, though, by the end of the book. By the end of this book, it's going to be solved. We saw in 63.1 it was solved. And we noticed in 63.3, he said they were wiped out in anger and in wrath. So that smoke that was irritating him has been put out. So will God have a divine reaction to this continual sin? And yes, that's rhetorical. I just said that he had wiped these people out. But we're going to look here at his statement in verses 6 and 7. 6 says, Behold, it is written before me, I will not keep silent, but I will repay. I will indeed repay into their lap both your iniquities and your father's iniquities together, says the Lord. Because they have made offerings on the mountains and insulted me on the hills, and I will measure into their laps payment for their former deeds. Yes, he is going to provide a divine reaction, and it will be in the following way. So this divine reaction, number one, is going to be certain. It is certain. Because he said, it was written before me. This divine reaction, it is personal. It is personal. God says he will not keep quiet. It is measured. This divine reaction is measured. He said they will be paid back in full. Also, this divine reaction will be individual in its application. Repay in their lap, and we can add it in full again. And the divine reaction will be a final settlement, a final settlement. All the work of sin will be accounted for, and the cost of sin will be paid out. There's something I want you to catch if you didn't already. In verses 6 and 7, God went from a there to now he made it personal with a your. What God is doing is bringing guilt home to us to see it's not a it's those people problem. He is interested in you. It is a you that he is dealing with. God does not tolerate being mocked either. So these people that are basically mocking him, we see the example in Isaiah 37.4. And I love saying this name so you get to hear it again. The Rabshakeh mocked the living God and what ultimately happened? Assyria did not live. They didn't survive. They got wiped out. They came and boldly mocked the living God and God took care of them. Verses 8 through 10. God's preserved remnant will inherit his land. Thus says the Lord, as the new wine is found in the cluster, and they say, do not destroy it, for there is blessing in it. So I will do for, so my, so I will do for my servant's sake and not destroy them all. I will bring forth offspring from Jacob and from Judah, possessors of my mountain. 
My chosen shall possess it, and my servant shall dwell there. Sharon will become a pasture for flocks, and the valley of Achor a place for herds to lie down, for my people who have sought me. Verse 8, so we see destruction and salvation in the forms of grapes and wine, just like we did in 63. The new wine in the cluster is specific. Side note, it's not juice here. Some translations have made it, but this is not. This is fully fermented and ready for use. But as a wine made from juice that was collected before the pressing of the grapes. So finding these grapes and their juice was already oozing from them as they were placed in the container to be pressed already were sending juice down the line to become wine. It was never pressed, so this was collected. It was collecting, and since it was before the press, in that day, it was a highly praised, and it was saved. It was saved. Keep that in mind. I know today we value the first cold press when we buy olive oil, right? We want that first cold press. And, but this valuable wine, you'd look on the shelf and it would say, no press. This is in relation to 63.3. The people prized by God did not require any stomping like the others got in 63.3. That's us. Those called by God did not get stomped. That's good news. The others did not fare so well. And while those others felt the wrath of Jesus when he punished the world, the picture we see here is that, you know, he stomped them like grapes. And the blood on his garments was not juice. It's a picture of the, the grape juice, but it wasn't juice. Side note, this is something interesting I found by going through this. There are four songs in Psalms that use the same tune, and it's a it was a tune called Do Not Destroy. Pretty cool. Those are chapters 57 through 59 and chapter 75. And I had never noticed that before. This tune was used for worship and, and it was used by the people to sing as they worked. So it probably had a good steady beat. The owner of the vineyard wanted them to be stomping to. It definitely wasn't the blues or a ballad. It was some peppy foot stomping music. And, and we know this because in Isaiah 16.10, God had taken away joy and gladness away from the fruitful fields, and he said in the vineyards, no songs are sung. And then Jeremiah 25.30, it says, you therefore shall prophesy against them all these words and say to them the Lord will roar from on high and from his holy habitation under utter his voice he will roar mightily against the, his fold and shout 
So he's saying he will roar mightily in his field and shout like those who tread grapes against the inhabitants of all the earth. So we see the song, the peppy beat, the working by those in the fields that tread grapes. And they use this tune. The last part of verse 8 is awesome. Again, here we are in the Old Testament. This Old Testament message to us who understand grace because of the Holy Spirit in our lives. It says, so I will do for my servant's sake and not destroy them all. This is grace. Everyone, keeping in this theme, everyone was due the wine press, due to be stomped. But we, the new wine, we were saved from it. And this may be the first time you've heard a gospel message in regards to wine or a wine press. But because of grace, we were saved and we were not, like the rest of the world, a stain or just trace DNA on Jesus' robe. And what is cool is that we are promised this best wine during this great feast known as the marriage supper of the Lamb. Okay, verse 9. Those not stomped will be God's chosen. Offspring, offspring refers to the promises made to Abraham and his promise extended to us Gentiles as well. So God's chosen, those who have received salvation by his grace will be brought into the land that he has for them, this chosen place of blessing. Verse 10, this blessing is giving and the desolate Sharon will become a pasture land and the valley of trouble or Achor, as it says, will now signify peace as we see flocks come into it and that peace is that they lie down. What a picture that is, right? If you're a defenseless animal, you don't lie down unless you know it's safe and there's no predators around. Otherwise, you lay down in the, where the weak and the feeble are that you know you cannot run. But this is a picture of the whole herd coming in and feeling that peace and lying down. And the significance of this verse is Sharon and Achor are to be seen on either side of Jerusalem. So the whole region, basically the whole world, will be blessed by God at this time. Acre, you remember, was a sign of trouble. And we saw this in Joshua 7, 26. Joshua 7, 26. After the battle of Jericho, a man named Achan, I don't name him, but that's a perfect name for what happened, decided to keep some of the spoil from the battle when they were not supposed to. I mean, what a horrible sign. They were defeated by a small little 
little village. In fact, spies had gone out, came back to Joshua and said, don't send the whole army. Just send a couple thousand. We got this. So they did, and those men were routed. Joshua sought God, and God said, someone sinned. We'll find out. So they bring every, can you imagine this? I often think this guy, I wonder just the pressure was coming on. They brought everyone together and slowly dwindled this search down till they got to this clan. As soon as they got to him, Joshua said, tell me, brother, what'd you do? And he goes, well, I did. I kept precious metals and some clothing. They're in my tent. So then that meant him, his family, their animals, everything they owned were taken, stoned, and buried. And that's the Valley of Achor, or the sign of trouble. And, and Joshua says, And they raised over him a great heap of stones that remains to this day. Then the Lord turned from his burning anger. Therefore, to this day, the name of the place is called the Valley of Acre, trouble. But like in verse 10, it says, Hosea 2.15. Hosea 2.15 tells us, And there I will give her vineyards and make the valley of Acre a door of hope. And there she shall answer as in the days of her youth, as at the time when she came out of the land of Egypt. So the land will be restored, it will be peace, flocks will lie down. And this gives us a picture of this entire land as a place under the blessing of God. And the phrase, for the people who sought me, again, like we talked about before, this is the people who seek God to know him better and really seek to develop that deep relationship with him. Isaiah 51.1 says, Listen to me, you who pursue righteousness, you who seek God. They understood, behold me, behold me. Verses 11 and 12, The fate for the followers of folly. But you who forsake the Lord who forgot my holy mountain, who set a table for fortune and fill cups of mixed wine for destiny, I will destine you to the sword. And all of you shall bow down to the slaughter, because when I called, you did not answer. When I spoke, you did not listen. But you did what was evil in my eyes and chose what I did not delight in. After the beautiful promises of 8 through 10, we come to these final two verses today. These two verses contrast what we saw in 8 through 10 and give us a progression in punishment from that outlined in verses 2 through 7. Verse 7, there would be pain, said there would be pain and payback. And verse 12, promises the sword. Verse 11, Matthew 6.24 tells us that, you know, it's impossible to serve two masters. It's impossible. You'll either love one and hate the other, 
or love one and despise the other. So there's no compromise listed here in verse 11. Nothing. God is saying if you follow cults, you're forgetting God and his requirements. If you're in love with the world, you're forgetting God and his requirements. If you are busy on a mountain of sin, you will never reside in God's holy mountain. Verse 7 says they performed these pagan religious rituals and offended God all day long. They found no problem being religious, but it was on their own terms. They had forgotten God and enjoyed this version they created. They would perform these fake religious acts on any mountain but God's. Set a table for fortune and fill cups of mixed wine for destiny. This is an example of how silly their rituals were. We see this today, right? You go into a restaurant or you go around someone's house and there's cups or bowls filled with food and a drink for their created gods who are unable to partake in anything and even need to be dusted on occasion. That's who they worship. But these people do this believing, or at least telling people outright, these things that we made or bought from a flea market control our destiny. Fortune was a Syrian god, and it was worshipped widely. Fortune was known by a lot of other names, but in Joshua 11.17, Joshua 11.17, we see it called as Baal Gad. Destiny is a term meaning an allocation of fate, which is ironic because we know the fate that awaits them. Verse 12, destined is a play on that word, on the god of, of fate being called destiny. Get it? You're destined for the sword. They sought an allocation of fate, and it's coming in destruction by that sword. And then we see the term bow down. To me, bow down to the slaughter is really interesting. Really interesting. Philippians 2, 10 through 11. Philippians 2, 10 through 11. We all know this. We all know this. It tells us that the name, at the name of Jesus, everyone will bow down and confess that he is God. And I get the feeling, just me, probably, but when Jesus did this, they all bowed down to confess his name. Then the slaughter began. I really believe that could be it, and I could be wrong. We have forever for you to point that out to me. But I really believe, I mean, that they're going to come in and they're going to be on their knee confessing that Jesus is God. And it says right here that they will bow and be slaughtered. One thing they will not say is the lifestyle they're living now. They will not be on a knee in front of Jesus confessing that lifestyle is God. They won't. They're going to be saying, Jesus is God. And what they can't say is they didn't know 
and nobody told him. That won't happen. In verse 2, we read that I spread out my hands all the day to a rebellious people who walked in a way that is not good, following their own devices. All the while, all the while, he kept looking out, hands spread out, saying, here I am, here I am. Let's pray. Jesus, what a beautiful passage. What a beautiful thing that we see is you, despite us, are out there calling. You want us in this forever covenant, this forever relationship with you. You're real. We may ignore you. We may say you're not real. We may say we don't believe. But that doesn't mean this book is false and that what you have promised to occur won't happen. May everyone here in this hearing and their loved ones understand that we need to know you more, know you more relationally, and be obedient. We don't want to be that stench in your nostrils. We don't want to be under your foot. Father, we thank you for your mercy. We thank you of your call on our lives. We can never, never, ever thank you enough for that. But we will have eternity to try. We love you so much. Amen.